I, to start off, I, I can imagine many of you guys caught the OSU football game yesterday. It's the first one of the season. Um, it was a pretty long game. I fell asleep, took a little bit of a nap at halftime, and thought I'd missed the whole second half. And no, I didn't. Didn't even start yet. A um, little bit of a rain delay. But you know, football season, especially OSU, is always an exciting time for me. I get really excited. That's where I went to school, and I've just always enjoyed uh, enjoyed watching the sport. And I I was thinking yesterday how much time and preparation goes in, um, and all the planning and practicing for months and months leading up to that first game, leading up to that first moment. But not only in in trying to understand what what our team is going to do, but how much time and prep goes into studying the opponent. And thinking about what the opponent is going to do. And, and studying, you know, what kind of offense do they like to run? And what kind of defensive formations do they tend to line up in? And is, it's equally, if, if not as much or even more important, to know not only what you're going to do, but what your opponent is going to do. And, and we've been in this series, and we're talking, uh, that we just started last week on spiritual warfare, that we're calling the invisible war. And, uh, and, and on the same token of thinking about that, uh, football, it's the same is true for us, that we need to know that we have an opponent, that we have an enemy even to say that. We have an enemy. And we need to kind of know and be aware of, of what he does, of, of what kind of tactics he uses, of, of what he's like, so that we are not blindsided or caught off guard by the place he tries to run on us. Now, and that's kind of our goal today, is to talk about knowing our enemy, knowing our enemy and and I'm kind of making the assumption and, assu- and kind of jumping ahead here a little bit to assume that uh, you believe that we do, in fact, have an enemy, that we do, in fact, have an enemy, that, there, that, there is, that he does actually exist, because I realize that that might not be true for all of you. In fact, I was reading, and they did a, Barna Group did a study a couple years back that said Americans who would self-identify themselves as Christians, that 35% would say they do not believe that we have a living devil or enemy that is against us. 35%. Another 8% said they're not sure. So that's over 40% of people who would identify themselves as Christians would say that they're not sure or don't believe that we have an enemy. Now, I have a feeling that in this space, with many of you, that that number's probably a lot lower, percentage-wise just because I know many of you. But, but I, I recognize that for some of us that you may fall into that category. You're not sure or you don't believe that. And I would just really encourage you uh, to do a couple things if that's you. I would encourage you to, to listen to Michael's talk from last week if you weren't here. He made some really great points in that. And second, I would ask you to look at, I would ask you to look at the life of Jesus. That if you would say, I'm following Jesus, I want to pursue him that you would look at his life, because when you look at his life, Jesus, I think, clearly in the Bible, believed that we had an enemy. He believed that there was a devil, that there were demons. In fact, if you look, you know, it's been estimated about 25% of his ministry was dealing with the demonic. So if, if Jesus, if we're going to really follow Jesus and model our life after him, and, th- and we're going to take his teachings and his actions seriously, then, then we need to really consider that, that it, it may possibly be true. Archibald Brown put it this way. He said, the existence of the devil is so clearly taught in the Bible that to doubt it is to doubt the Bible itself. And and ultimately, I believe that if if we look at our own lives, if we humbly and openly look at our own lives, 
that God would open our eyes to realize that some of our challenges are, are spiritual. Some of our, some of our circumstances in life and challenges that we face, there's a spiritual battle going on. Okay? So I'm just kind of making that assumption that we're all kind of on that same page, but if you're not, then just hang with me today, and, and I think this talk will be really helpful. But let's pray. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just invite, invite your presence here today. And as much as we like to talk about the warm, fuzzy things of our faith, we want to acknowledge that there is an invisible war going on. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see that battle today and, and, and to equip us to learn how our enemy works so that we can be confident and not afraid, and not afraid and not caught off guard, but better prepared to expand your kingdom here on earth. Amen. Amen. So if we're starting from this point of understanding that we have an enemy, he does exist, and that there, he, is, he and demons are actively opposing God's kingdom and, and essentially opposing us as human beings, then how do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? It seems so invisible or so subtle. And the first point in your notes is that it helps us to know, that you're, to know your enemy by knowing his titles. That, that in the Bible, the Bible gives us many different titles for our enemy. And, and that can help describe him and his character and attributes. Think of it like this, going, kind of going back to a sports analogy. You know, sometimes if sport, sports athletes will get a nickname based on their qualities or their characteristics. So we're, let's play a little game here for a little minute. Let's see. Last night, they did great. They all three of my, three of my questions. So the very first person is, I want to see if anybody knows the nickname and remembers the nickname of a guy who played for the Chicago Bears named William Perry. The fridge, yeah, the refrigerator, because he was the size of a fridge, right? And when he hit you, it felt like getting hit by a fridge. Good. All right, how about uh, Lakers player Wilt Chamberlain? The stilt, yeah. He was seven foot one, and the time he played, he was pretty much a head, head taller than everybody else. And he definitely used his height to be one of the great basketball players of all time. Uh, this one might be a little bit trickier, because it's just a little bit, or Lou Gehrig, the iron horse. The Iron Horse, yeah, the Iron Horse. Um, just big for his size, just total work ethic was just amazing. He just carried his team. I think he held the record for most games played for like consecutively for like 60 years, like without breaking that record. But so these guys, so good job, you got them all. The, these nicknames, you know, describe something about these men and how they played their sports. And the same is true. Uh, in the Bible, that names mean things in the Bible. Names aren't just random or, or trendy, but they actually have meaning to them. And those meanings usually speak about that person's character or attributes in life. And, and so it's no surprise that the writers of the Bible use names and titles to describe our enemy and his attributes and character. And it kind of can help us to understand how he works. So we're going to look at a lot of listed titles here. And I, I don't for those of you who are note takers, I'm going to go probably too fast for you to write it down. But if you really want this list, you can email me here at the church, Andrew Hudson at vineyardcdc.org, and I would be glad to share it with you because we're going to kind of truck it through here real quick. So the first one, first one's probably many of you have heard of. The first one is Satan. Satan literally means adversary. He's our adversary. He opposes God's kingdom. He's actively working to attempt to sabotage God's plan and to attack us human beings. He's also known as the devil, which means slanderer. He loves to stir up false witnesses, to spread untrue gossip and rumors. 
He wants to ruin the reputation of God's people. Lucifer. Lucifer literally means the son of morning or shining one. Shining one. And it's interesting. He's not, he's not going to come at us ugly with scary horns. No, he's actually going to be attractive, enticing, seductive. He's the shiny one. Beelzebub means lord of the flies. Lord of the flies. The Jews saw him as the lord of filth, of dirt. He's known as the angel of abyss in Revelations 9. And, and Abaddon and Apollyon are also two names, Hebrew and Greek, that are also in that same verse that literally mean destroyer. He wants to destroy us and destroy what God's doing. He's known as the evil one. Jesus calls him this, as well as John and Paul. And, uh, and in the Greek, this phrase evil one means absolute corruption. Absolute corruption. That he is influencing everything evil in the world. He is nudging that. He is pushing that agenda. You know, mass shootings and human trafficking and terrorism. He's, he's, he's influencing that. He's known as the tempter. He, he takes God's good uh, desires that we would have and he twists them. And he, he, he brings temptation for us to fulfill those desires in, in unhealthy ways, in sinful ways. Things, desires to be loved and to love, desires for acceptance and, and food and rest and sex. And he takes all those good godly things and he presents them in distorted ways. And that ways that will never fully satisfy and always leave us longing. He's the prince of this world, says. The god of this age. The ruler of the world system. See, he's backing up. He's backing up every, you know, false religion. He wants to push that. Every false doctrine, he's, he's, he's nudging that. Every false philosophy or morality. Historically, he's, he's been behind in nudging corrupt governments and institutions that have affected lives through things like slavery and unfair wars and unfair distribution of public services. He's, he's known as the accuser in Revelation 12. He's known as the accuser. He, he is quick to highlight our sins and he wants to constantly remind us of them. He tries to bombard us and overwhelm us to to. For, to, not, to forget that those sins have been paid for. He wants us to forget that Jesus has paid for those sins. Jesus calls him the father of lies and a murderer. He's the, he's the leader of demonic forces of evil. And he's like a roaring lion, a serpent, a dragon, and a thief. Now, you may have noticed that all those titles I left lowercase. I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose. You know, when we, when we capitalize somebody's name, and, and in, a lot of times in the Bible you'll see the word Lord in all caps, it's to bring awe and honor and respect. And we don't want to do that. We, we don't want to glorify the enemy in any way. So, um, so that just in case you were curious. But there's, you know, I think there was over 20 titles 20 titles here, and I probably left out one or two, I don't know, but, um, but 20 titles that help kind of paint a portrait of who our enemy is, what his qualities are like, what his character's like, and, and that's really important. We need to go you know, and look at scripture to know what that's like, and not what our imagination thinks he's like, and not what Hollywood tells us he's like. You know, he's not some red-suited, you know, in tights, you know, being or whatever, but 
But what is he really like? But I don't know about you, that, that, was, that list is overwhelming, even for me, even though I've been studying it. It's overwhelming. It seems like you'd have to be superhuman to, to kind of analyze and take that all in. But, so what I want to do is I want to spend some time where we look at where's, where do some of those titles kind of overlap? Where are some themes that we see in some of those titles to kind of condense it down a little bit and make it a little bit more easy to, to, to understand? So I want to talk about how does his titles affect the tactics that he uses? And that's the second point in your notes, that we, can, we need to know his tactics. How does he come at us? And we're going to talk about six different things. And again, these six are not exhaustive. But these are kind of six of his, his go-to plays in his playbook, if we keep, keep on the sports analogy. These go-to plays that he tries to, to use to, to put intersecting thoughts in our minds and, and affect us with our emotions and and I want you to notice that as we go through this list, that they, they progressively get a little bit heavier, that there's a little bit more weight or darkness that gets kind of piled on as it increases. So, so the first tactic is doubt, doubt, that our enemy wants to, to fill us with doubt. Much of the battle is of doubting, intersecting thoughts that come into our minds. The devil and his demons, they put thoughts in our minds to try to derail us. And this is actually the very first thing, very first tactic that he ever uses in the whole Bible. In Genesis 3.1, it says this. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? From, or you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The enemy, he plants this seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? Is that what he really meant? You know, it looks good to eat. Why wouldn't God want me to have good things? Could there be an exception to that? And instead of Eve just replying, yes, he did, and walk away, she continues to engage in the conversation. She sticks around. She, she can, and that doubt begins to start to grow like a seed in her mind. Well, maybe, maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe, maybe that is true. I don't know. And these thoughts seem subtle and harmless oftentimes, but when planted in the right soil, they can be catastrophic. Such thoughts as like, does God, does God really love me? Like, I know, he, I know he loves me. I know he loves everybody, but does he really love me unconditionally? God seems to have a great plan for everybody else's life, but does he really have a plan for my life? Or I know that God wants to forgive us, but I don't, I don't know if he can forgive me for that, for that thing. And if, if our enemy can get us to doubt God's goodness, even for just a little bit, it might just be enough. It might just be for us, enough for us to unconsciously disengage with God, you know, to, to cause us to, to break away a little bit from, from break away from pursuing a relationship with him or to, to not attend church regularly or kind of hold back on, on reading your Bible or praying or going to small group. And, it, and, if, and he wants to throw these thoughts into our mind to just make us stumble. But if that doesn't do the trick, he'll move on to the next. And the next tactic is deception. Deception, that he is a deceiver. He is a liar. It says the devil is a liar and a manipulator. He will try to deceive us. Every thought and word that comes out of his mouth or into our minds is a lie. Jesus tells us this in John 8, 44. He says this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is the very next thing that he does to Eve in Genesis as well. In Genesis 3, 4, when doubt isn't quite enough, the serpent tells her this. He says, and he says this, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will know good, knowing good and evil. He lies to her. But was it, was it a complete lie? No, it wasn't. It's not like they ate the fruit and immediately like clutched their throats and you know, fell over dead. They didn't die physically immediately. That wouldn't come for many years later. But there was a spiritual death and a relational death that happened right then. But he, he deceives them with kind of a half-truth, half-lie. He makes it look attractive. Remember, his name is Lucifer, the shiny one. He makes it look attractive. Um, and isn't that the way with sin oftentimes? That the effects of sin, we don't, we don't see the effects of our sin right away. It's not until later that, that we experience the effects of that. But, but we know that you know, this caused a lot of issues. I mean, they were, there was a split between God and mankind at that point on. Adam and Eve were quickly thrown out of God's presence and out of the Garden of Eden. The deceiving lies of Satan, they open us up to temptation like, like Adam and Eve. And, and, and remember, he's also known as the tempter. Oh, just once isn't that big of a deal. Or if my spouse doesn't know it, it can't really hurt him. You know, God wants good things for me, doesn't he? So this would be okay one time. You know, when we entertain these lies, then what we do unintentionally is we leave the door of our souls open a crack, allowing the opportunity not just for the enemy to knock and bang and make a bunch of noise, but to walk right in. And much later in the Bible, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die on the cross, Peter says, basically, no way, not going to happen, not going to happen. And how does Jesus respond? He looks right at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. And I always imagine Peter's like, wait, are you talking to me? Wait, are you, I'm Peter. Did you forget who I was? And the truth is, is Jesus knew exactly that was Peter, but he saw the enemy at work in that moment. He saw with spiritual eyes and heard with spiritual ears that the enemy had planted that deceiving lie into Peter's mind and Peter spoke it out because he wanted to use Peter to try to derail Jesus from doing the thing and work that God had set before him. And Jesus saw it as a lie right off the bat. And when we believe his lies, when we, when we give into temptation and sin, then the enemy, he is also the first one to, to come right back and discourage us. And that's the next tactic, discouragement. He is the first one to accuse us and condemn us. Remember, his name means accuser. You blew it. You blew it. You're so dirty. You're so dirty. If you weren't unlovable before, you definitely are now. He puts thoughts like this in our mind. Revelation 12.10 describes him as a dragon and as one who accuses us before God day and night. Before day and night. He likes, remember the devil means slander. He never, he never rests in trying to discredit us or tear us down. He's like a a temper tantrum toddler tattletailing on us before God over and over and over and over again. And I, the, the amount of guilt and shame 
that I see Christians carrying around with them all the time, wherever they go, the amount of guilt and shame that I see myself trying to carry around is so immense. It's so immense and completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. Christ died so we didn't have to carry any of that stuff around. He says his yoke is light. And if he refuses to listen to all that tattletaling, then why do we? Why do we? Why do we still all too often hold on to that guilt and shame? But sometimes there's no sin involved at all when we feel discouraged. Sometimes it's just circumstances of life. You lose your job. You know, something goes wrong. Or, or we're comparing ourselves with other people. You know, for example, let's imagine, you know, a, a working mom named Sue. She, she looks at her friend who's a stay-at-home mom, Amy, and, she, and the enemy just puts this thought of, you're not a really good mom, Sue. You're not a very good mom. You know, look at Amy. She stays home with her kids. She bonds with them all day long. You're, you're not doing a very good job. Meanwhile, at the same time, the enemy is speaking lies to Amy, saying, Amy, you're not a really good mom. You're not, that, you're not doing a very good job. Look at Sue. You know, you, you, if you worked like Sue, you could afford more new clothes for your kids and take them on more trips and do more things with them. You're not a very good mom. Neither is right or wrong, but the enemy wants to discourage us in any way that he can. In any way that he can, he will attack us. If discouragement isn't enough, our enemy will bring feelings of despair. Despair, that's our fourth tactic. That feelings of hopelessness, of feeling defeated, of, of loneliness, just general cloud of darkness over our lives, leaving many of us depressed and anxious and fearful. Now, now I, I just want to disclaimer here, say that I recognize that not all forms of depression and anxiety are spiritual attack. I do not believe that. You know, our, our mind is a complex organ, has lots of different factors influencing it. But I do believe that at times, at times, these kinds of um, feelings of emotions, of states of mind, can be spiritual attacks. If you look in 1 Samuel, the story of King Saul is a great biblical example, where he was afflicted by evil spirits that affected him and tormented him and made him very fearful and very anxious and very depressed. But if you don't typically struggle with depression or extreme fear, and all of a sudden you get blindsided by these despairing feelings, and you're not going through any tragedy in your life, you know, it's possible that might be a spiritual attack. I've learned and almost come to expect that uh, usually the f- a few days before it's my weekend to preach, I always get really, really low. And I'm not typically somebody who struggles with high anxiety or depression. And, and oh, it used to always surprise me and catch me off guard. And then I felt like God, I would ask God, why am I feeling this way? And, and then like, I remember one time a light bulb went off and we're like, it was kind of like the Holy Spirit just saying, hey, do you remember what you're going to go do in two days or a day? Were you going to get up and speak and share with the people of VCDC? That's why you feel like that. You're being attacked. You know, I've shared a lot over the, over the years um, about my wife, Sarah, and how she struggled for a few years with an autoimmune disorder and not feeling well. And um, even despite all the physical symptoms that she struggled, as hard as that was to watch her struggle with, maybe even more was watching her struggle with the, the despair and the hopelessness that she felt and experienced during that time. You know, that, that, it, that just affected her mentally and emotionally. You know, she began to believe that she would never get better. 
that this was how her life was going to be forever, that she would, she would never be able to have a job again or care for her children to the level or extent that she wanted to again. And my typically happy, joy-filled wife was, was struggling with hopelessness. Every day was a battle in her mind. And I, rem- I remember she would play worship music like all the time. All the time. And I remember one time in particular coming home and worship music was just blaring really loud and that was not something typical. She was like doing the dishes and cleaning up and just crying and just, just you know, honestly being like young David uh, who, would, who, would, and who would play worship music for King Saul to try to ease his, his discomfort, his pain and, and, to, and to ease his despair. And the enemy, he wants to do that. He wants to attack us in times of weakness and in circumstances of weakness and pile, pile on the loneliness and hopelessness whenever he can. Fifth, he tries, he tries to divide us, division. He brings division. He wants to divide us from each other and ultimately from God himself. In the, in the Garden of Eden, after, after they eat the fruit, Adam blames Eve. Adam basically says, she made me do it, which is, by the way, never a good idea, husbands. <laughs> never wise. That is never going to turn out well. Do not just blame your wife for things. But there was division between husband and wife. What was meant to be the most intimate and close human relationship, the enemy drives a wedge between it. And what God desired for Adam and Eve was more than anything was a healthy relationship with himself and each other. And the thief stole that from them. And he wants to steal it from us as well. The prince of this world wants to divide each of us from our families. He wants to divide us in our church. He wants to divide us by our ethnicity and races and ultimately from God himself. You know, the other day, I was, as I began to research and jot down some notes and kind of get excited about what I was going to share today, Sarah and I got into this argument right before bed. And it was a stupid argument. And I say stupid, not that she was being stupid. I was being stupid. I was being an idiot. And, and we got into this argument, and it was late at night. And I did that, that thing that makes perfect sense in the moment, where I grabbed my pillow with authority and said, that's it. I'm sleeping on the couch. Right? That's that couch that's going to make my back ache for, ache for three days. You know? And I can't sleep because the street light's blinding me, and the window, and the ice machine keeps dropping ice all night long, and the refrigerator. And yeah, that was a great idea, right? But I went downstairs. And I just was just, these thoughts just kept coming into my mind. Like, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe she did that or said that. And again, she was fine. It was, yeah, it was me. But then they just kept getting worse. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger in my mind and in my, you know, bigger and bigger. And eventually it was kind of like the Holy Spirit just kind of whispered to me and said, you should, you should pray. <laughs> and then and as I began to pray, I began to see my ridiculousness. I began to see how, how I was the one who had, had blown everything out of proportion and how what I thought, what she said was not, I, what I took, I, what she said, I took it the wrong way. And that was not her intention. And so I came to my senses and thought, I don't want this back pain. And I went back to bed. <laughs> and I, she was already out and asleep. But the next morning, I just said, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? I was being an idiot. I know that's not what you meant. 
And I realize now, like, he, the enemy was trying to, he was building all this up in my mind bigger than it was, putting all these thoughts that were untrue about what she had done and what she had said into my mind, trying to divide us, trying to drive a wedge between us. I loved what Michael said in his sermon last week when he told the story of him and his wife, Helen, looking into each other's eyes, holding each other's hands and saying, you're not my enemy. You know, your spouse is not your enemy. Your mother-in-law is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Even when he drives you crazy, hypothetically, of course, when he <laughs> he's not your enemy, or she's not your enemy. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says this, for our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is really, really hard to fight a battle on two different fronts. And our enemy knows that. He wants us to pick a fight with anyone near us, especially the people we're closest to, so that we ignore him, and we ignore the battle that he, he, with him, and he wants to divide us. Finally, he wants to destroy us. John 10.10, 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You might remember one of the names that in Revelation was the name Abaddon and Apollyon, and they mean, literally mean destroyer in Hebrew and Greek. Our enemy would like nothing less than to destroy us. The Saint Angela Marisi of the 16th century said it like this. Consider that the devil does not sleep but seeks our ruin in a thousand ways. This is what the devil did to Job in the Bible. If you know the story of Job, Job, Job was a man who loved God, who served God like no one else, and Satan attacked him every way he could to try and destroy him. Job had 10 kids, and every single one of them died. He had a great career and a lot of wealth, and the enemy took all that away. He had high status and respect in the community of all the people, of his peers, and he slandered his name. All the while, Job, Job never cursed God. He remained faithful. But Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to tear our lives apart. He wants to entice us with addictions. He wants to drive parents to abuse their kids. He wants to nudge us towards pornography, lust, adultery, to try to destroy our marriages. Now, I am not ignoring the factor that we have to, we have to own our own personal responsibility for our sin here. The enemy cannot make you do anything. We cannot blame it and say the devil made me do it. But I do believe that there are spiritual elements, spiritual thoughts, where the devil knows our weak areas and he likes to pile on and attack those areas. He likes to try to nudge us and push us in that direction. And he amplifies those things. But, but we're not going to go into that too much because I know we're going to talk about spiritual strongholds and that idea in the future coming weeks. Um, so be ready for that. But, but if these are some of the tactics that he uses, if these are some of the things that he does, then when do they happen? Do they happen just randomly or at any time? Well, not, not typically, not usually. We can kind of come to anticipate when some of these things will come. Pastor, author, pastor and author Chip Ingram, who wrote the book The Invisible War, which is kind of the inspiration for the title of our series, talks about five different times when we can expect some of these tactics to happen. So the first one, I'm going to go through these quick. The first one 
is when we're in seasons of spiritual growth. Like when you say yes to Jesus and you commit your life to him, or when you commit to joining or attending church regularly, or going to a small group, or reading your Bible a lot, like that, the enemy doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. He'll, he'll come and try to scare us back into being lukewarm Christians. Or, or when we're invading the enemy territory, number two, the second one, when we're invading his territory. You know, we get serious about evangelism and sharing our story, our faith with our coworkers. You know, or we decide we're going to go on that mission trip like we've talked about all these years. We're going to actually do it. We're going to actually sign up for it. You know, the enemy doesn't want to give any ground that he has gained. You know, almost every time in the book of Acts when Paul would go into a new city or a new area, there would be some sort of pushback. He was beaten, stoned, protested against, you know, faced physical hardships almost every time. Third, when we expose the enemy, when we talk about stuff like this, when we talk about how he works, how demons work, and when we gently nudge a friend or family member in an area and, and say, hey, have you considered that you might be under spiritual attack? He doesn't like that. You know, as Michael and JT and Heather and I sat a few weeks ago talking about planning this sermon out, you know, there was kind of a consensus that we really need to be praying for each other because the stuff we're going to be speaking on is really going to put a target on us. And I would encourage you to be praying for the staff here over the next few weeks especially um, of this series, but, and all the time, but especially. You know, the prince of darkness doesn't like it when we shine a light on what he's trying to do. He would rather remain hidden in the shadows. The fourth thing, when we, when we make a decision to break from a pattern of sin... You know, I alluded to this earlier, but when we draw a line and we make a commitment, we say, that's it, I'm going to stop using pornography, I'm going to sober up, I'm going to end gossiping at work, what usually happens then? Doesn't the temptation usually get stronger, actually? It gets harder. Because he's coming at us. He wants, the enemy wants us to be remain chained to anything other than Jesus. If we are chained to anything else, then, then he sees that as a win. And finally, the fifth one, the fifth one is when we, there are blessings to come. And this may seem odd or counterintuitive, but, but oftentimes I believe that when the enemy attacks, it's become clear to him, and it may not be clear even to us yet, but that God is about to use you or bless you in a significant way. You know, over the last six months, as I've known that I was going to transition out of public education and come on staff here full time, I'll be honest, I have faced more spiritual attack in those six months than any other season of my life. There have been so many nights where I have been up in the middle of the night, just thoughts going through my mind, crazy thoughts that I knew were not my own, where I am reading my Bible, where I am praying, where I'm walking around at three in the morning, two in the morning, you know, dealing with this. And God has been wonderfully in sustaining me and getting me through it all. And he has protected me so much. But I, I recognize now that it's part of what he's been pushing me into and, and, and knowing that, that this was coming. So this would be really depressing, wouldn't it, if we just ended right here? <laughs> Talked all this. Now, yeah, we're, here's the good news. And this is how I want to end here before we go. Here's the great news, actually. And this is the third and final point, that we need to know, you need to know the team that you're on. You need to know your team. And here's what I mean by that. One John, 1 John 4, 4 says, you... Dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
Even though there is opposition in this life, even though the devil is dangerous and wants to destroy us, the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence in all Christians and all believers, is infinitely greater than the enemy and his demons. This philosophy or idea of dualism, that, that good opposes evil and evil opposes good and they're equally matched and who knows how it's gonna turn out is completely false. It's completely wrong. You know, Michael talked about this briefly last week, but he talked about that, how the invisible war, it's not evenly matched. The devil is not the counterpart to God. He's not the counterpart to God. Many of you know Joe Kowalczyk in our church. He's written a book called The Devil in the Back Pew and I know we sell it. Uh, and the book card out there, but it's, it's all about spiritual warfare. And he has this diagram that, go ahead and put that diagram up, that I think is really helpful, visual. Too often we see God and Satan as being on the same playing field, as being equally matched. That's not right. Satan is not God. He is a created being. He was an angel. The right way to see it is, is that there's God on top, and then below them are the angels. And if you remember last week, Michael talked about how Satan is a fallen angel. Michael the angel, not Michael Hansen. <laughs> not that you're not wonderful, Michael. <laughs> but, and Gabriel, like, that's where they go. And angels have a limitation to their power and authority. They are limited. They are created beings. But our God is not limited. He is unlimited. He has unlimited power and authority. So we do not, we have to remember whose team we're on and that, and that we have nothing to be afraid of. And as we get further into this series, we're gonna look at more specific ways of how we deal with, with this stuff. But I wanna leave one thing with us before we go today. And it, it may seem quite simple, but I wanna really challenge us to think about taking seriously, memorizing, and beginning to recite scripture. And for many of you, I know that, like you, many of you have been doing that for years, and I get that. And it may seem really basic, but there is power in the word of God. And, and specifically, we need to embed our minds with the truth. We need to embed our minds with the truth so that when it's late at night and thoughts start going through your mind, or you're in the middle of an argument and thoughts start going through your mind, we need to have this so deeply rooted in our souls and our minds and our hearts that it's what we go to that we can remember it and it's deeply implanted on us. And I wanna leave you with a few. Go ahead and put up that other chart. So as we talk today on the left about different ways the enemy causes doubt, deceives, discourages, despairs, divides and destroys, look at what the middle column says. This is what God does to overcome those things. And on the right, it's just one example of a verse that, that, I, that I've learned that helps in each of those areas. So where Satan causes doubt, God guarantees, he promises, he backs up. Hebrews 7, says, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He is our guarantor. When Thomas, one of his disciples, was doubting that he had risen from the grave, he appeared, Jesus appeared to him and said, Thomas, look at, my, look at my hands, right here. Put your hands right here. Basically, he was saying, this is my guarantee. This is my guarantee of what I've done for you. Okay, when, when the enemy tries to deceive us and lie to us, God brings truth. You know, John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth in the life, Jesus said. I, he personifies truth. Everything he taught, everything he did, every way he acted is truth. And when thoughts go through our mind and they don't match with that, we can say, no, you're, Jesus, you're truth. That is, that's a lie. I'm not gonna believe that. When he discourages us, God encourages us. He encourages Joshua 1.9. 
Do not be discouraged, it says. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you. You know, whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever thoughts are going through your mind, whatever you're battling with, God is with you. He will not leave you. He is for you. He's for you. Despair, when we go through dis- feelings of despair or states of despair, God gives hope. He gives hope. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, it says, in his great mercy, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Into a living hope. It's alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's alive. We can hold on to that hope when we're in seasons like that. Satan tries to divide, but God unifies. He unifies. It says in John 17, 23, that I am in them. Jesus is saying, I am in all of them, and you are in me, God. I am in them, you are in me, and you brought them into complete unity. That's a good one to memorize because it rhymes. It's easy. <laughs> complete you. That's what God has for us. When there's division in a relationship that you have, that's not what God has. He wants unity. He's for unity. He's backing up. To, he wants to reunite you guys. And he tries to destroy us, but God brings life. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the fullest. That's what God has for you and me. You know, it's been said that the majority of the spiritual warfare is not fought on the battleground of witches and warlocks' homes, but it's fought in the space between our two ears. It's fought right here. It's fought right there. And when I, when I sense a spiritual attack in my life, it's, it's verses like these. It's verses like these ones that I go to, that I, I, I say in my mind, or if, if possible, I'll say out loud, to speak truth to my heart, to shine a light on the enemy's plan. Nope, Satan. Nope, you're trying to make me doubt. Nope, nope, you're not going to do that. God's my guarantee. Jesus is my guarantee. Nope, you're trying to discourage me. Nope, I will not have that. He's my encourager. And isn't it true that this is exactly what Jesus himself did in the desert when he was tempted by the enemy three times? How did he get rid of the enemy? The son of God, the creator of the universe, he could have just, I don't know what that means, but just, you know, zapped him or something. He didn't, though. How did he overcome the enemy? He did it with scripture. He quoted scripture. And if Jesus, the son of God, does that, how much more do we need to do that? How much more do we need to begin to embed these things into our lives, into our practices. How much more do we need that? So here's how I want to end our time. Why don't we go ahead and stand up? If you're visiting with us today, we always like to end our time with a time of, of, of a ministry time, a time to respond uh, to what God is doing. And I, you know, I have a sense that as I was sharing some stories and talking about different ways our enemy works, that many of you were thinking about, oh, that sounds like that time in my life. Or I feel like I'm going through you know, one of those D's right now. And I just want to encourage you that if, if, if anything I said today just seemed to hit home, to come and get prayer. If you're really struggling with doubts, if you're really feeling deceived or discouraged, if you're feeling, you know, experiencing despair or there's a division in some relationship that you have, or you, you recognize that God or the enemy has been trying to destroy you with, through some sort of addiction or in some other way, then, then I believe that God wants to shine a light on that part of your life and cast out some of that darkness and bring light to that. And I want to invite you to come forward and, and just invite the Holy Spirit to bring freedom for you in whatever area that is. And I know that can be really hard and vulnerable. Um, and, and, and easy to just stay in our seats. But if we don't respond to that, if we just 
let it go, then really, who wins? Who wins? The enemy wins. He wants you to stay in your seat. He wants you to not receive what God has for you. So I want to invite those of you who just feel like that is true about you to come get prayer. I also had a sense that, you know, as I was talking about getting serious with memorizing scripture, that, that we recognize that that's hard for some people. That's hard, and, 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 uh, and you just want to kind of acknowledge that maybe you haven't done that well, or maybe that's a new idea to you, and you just want to have somebody come and bless that on you. Have somebody say, I want to do that really well, and I, I want to start to know, and again, not, not to memorize whole books of the Bible. I mean, that's great, but, but I get that you, know, that you may not have time to do that right now in your life or, or do that at all, but, but just to know some basic truths of, our, of, of the scriptures, to, to hold on to that in those moments, that God wants to bless that and, and have you just get prayer for that. And then I also felt two things, just physical things. Um, last night I had a sense of like heart arrhythmias. If you have an issue with your heart or you're gonna have a, you know, heart surgery or anytime soon if you want to come get prayer for that I think God wants to do something with that and then before during worship I felt like my right hip I don't know who's who's has issues with their right hip it could be your left hip but if that's you I would encourage you to come and get prayer for that too Um, so Ben is going to lead us in a worship song and just don't miss out on this opportunity to meet with God this morning all right so guys pray for girls and guys pray for guys and girls pray for girls I spoke a word you were singing over me you've been so so good to me before I took a breath you breathed your life in me we're gonna need lots of prayers so so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. I could Still you give yourself away Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God
pushes me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down Lie you won't tear down Coming after me There's no shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down you won't tear down coming after me oh the overwhelming never ending reckless love of God oh it chases me down fights till I'm found leaves the 99 I couldn't earn it I don't deserve it still you yourself away all the overwhelming never ending reckless love of God all the overwhelming never ending reckless love of God oh it chases me down fights till I'm found leaves the front getting prayer just continue to receive the encouragement that I believe God has for you but if you're in your seats I want to end I want to do this real quick if you feel comfortable just extending your hand up towards these people up front and just with me just just pray this blessing over them Holy Spirit we just invite you to continue to do what you're doing continue to bring freedom continue to speak truth and encourage You know, any spiritual attack or demonic forces, we just rebuke you and we tell you to go in the name of Jesus. We just say you're not welcome in these people's lives. You're not welcome in them. Let's pray that. Amen. Amen. I, I want to end with this challenge. I want to end in... And say, I would really encourage you all to think about, you know, what are those tactics that we talked about today that may be your tactics that the enemy seems to come at you the most with? 
You know, I think most of us could probably identify one or two of those things that we battle with more often than the others. And to, to seriously take the challenge of, of learning some scripture to, to combat some of that. And then begin to memorize it this week. Put it right on a sticky note. Put it in your car. You know, put it on the mirror where you're getting ready in the bathroom in the morning. Whatever. And, and begin to embed your mind with that truth. And then begin to apply it in your life. To speak it over yourself. To, to invite God to speak it over you. And see, him, see if he doesn't change, change you in that area. See if he doesn't change you in that area. You know, our... In the example of Jesus, we need to remember that he is leading our team and he is like LeBron James and like Tom Brady and Mike Trout and Michael Phelps all wrapped up in one times a thousand. And then another thousand and another thousand and another thousand. He is infinitely amazing and powerful. And, and he is the one that has, has already taken the victory. The victory has already been won. They, that the enemy and his demons are like annoying mosquitoes in the dark. That, yeah, they can buzz around and annoy us and they can bite us from time to time. But when we turn on the light and we see them for what they are, the Holy Spirit has more than enough power to flick them away or squash them out. More than enough power. So let's pray to end. God, we, we respect our enemy, but we do not fear him. We prepare, but we do not panic. We fight from victory, not for victory, because victory has already been won with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we can stand firm on your authority, God, not our own. Help us to grow in understanding of the invisible word that we're in and learn to lean on you and your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.